from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. We're currently in the one week of the athletic year with no events to speak of as the basketball players who would be competing trade balls for books during final exams. But just because nothing is happening on the court doesn't mean there isn't plenty of news to cover. On today's show, we'll talk about the fascinating transformation of the O'Connell Center into Exact Tech Arena with Executive Associate Athletics Director for Internal Affairs Chip Howard and delve into football, basketball, and more in a roundtable chat with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. But first, the new-look Exact Tech Arena at the Stephen C. O'Connell Center is finally ready for fans to enjoy after an accelerated eight-month facelift that has completely changed the look and feel of a familiar building. But there's only so much you can learn about a massive project like this just from walking by high fences and looking at construction photos. So we sat down with UAA point man Chip Howard to get the nuts and bolts on this game-changing renovation. 29 months right now, I went back and looked and found the first picture from the first meeting was July 1st, 2014. So it's been quite a process, but well worth it. You know, when the fans and everybody have a chance to go in and experience the O'Connell Center, they'll understand it was well worth the wait. Even beyond that, when did this start in kind? When did you first start thinking this is something we need to do, and how long of a process was that? Yeah, we completed the study back in January of 2011. Wow. So as far back as that is, is really it was a goal of ours to look at what we could do based on what USF was doing mm-hmm. in Tampa, what we could do to improve the O'Connell Center. Those are two sister facilities, um, a lot of similarities between the two. And, um, and that's really when we commissioned the study and started working on what we could do. How many stages is that then from the time you decide this is something you want to do to the point we are now where it's basically finished? Yeah, once we, fi- once we completed the, um, the study, we partnered up with the foundation, UF Foundation across the street, and they really put together a good fundraising plan because really we needed the money to get it done. And so we went on a fundraising tour, kind of barnstorming with Coach Donovan and, and our booster staff and Tom Mitchell and Jeremy and Rhonda Fain and Amanda Butler and everybody that kind of went around to different cities here in the state to kind of generate interest in the project and really see if some people could step forward uh, from a fundraising perspective. That took a couple of years, and it bared the fruit that we were able to go ahead and get started with it. The big difference between the way this works and the way an NFL franchise works, there's no billionaire at the top that just builds something new if he wants it. So what's that balance between things that you want to do but also having to fund those things with a lot of help? This particular project was even more unique in that it's not our facility. It's mm-hmm. the university's mm-hmm. facility. So you're dealing with the university itself and what their goals are and what their needs are, as well as individual coaches. And then obviously from our perspective, from a program's perspective, what's important to us. Mm-hmm. So that was a challenge to balance all those things out. I mean, I thought we had a good team together. We had a lot of great communication. But it was difficult at times trying to find out what was important, what needed to be funded. You know, back, uh, you know, 12, 18 months ago when we were looking at changing our, our contractor, a lot of it had to do with price and, and what we were going to have to cut out of the project in order to make it work. That was not worth it. We did not want to cut the certain elements out of the project, so we went with a different contractor. That different contractor was able to deliver the project on time 
with all the different project components we wanted. That sort of leads into another question I had in terms of what this building means to so many different people, the university, basketball, volleyball, gymnastics. There's just so many different tenants, so to speak. How did you incorporate their input, and where was that most felt? Sure. We, I mean, we spoke with all the, all the coaches uh, and their staff, you know, trainers, uh, maintenance people, everybody that we could we brought to the table to see what are your needs, what's important to you. We couldn't satisfy all the needs, but we could satisfy what was important to them, both from a recruiting standpoint and a competition standpoint. And then, you know, you've got the, the, you've got the university folks who live and breathe mm-hmm. in that facility itself. Their offices needed to be upgraded. Their offices needed to be expanded. Um, and then, you know, obviously the community is going to benefit from it. So we looked at it as, as a multi-pronged uh, approach to what we can deliver as far as the facility itself, but all the different people that will benefit from it. This is happening right outside your window as we sit here in your office. So I'm curious, what's the day-to-day like for you from the start of this project to completion? Are you there every day? Are you constantly taking calls about it? How involved does the Athletic Association have to be once it gets going? Yeah, we were pretty. We were in a leadership role with the project management. We were the ones that were able to bring the architect and the CM to the table. They worked on the indoor football facility for us, as well as the gymnastics expansion when we did that. So we were in tune with what their needs were, what, and they were in tune with what our needs were. So I would just say, you know, weekly we would have calls, weekly we would have meetings. Um, I travel to the site at least once or twice a week. I would say over the last two and a half weeks, it's been multiple trips a day mm-hmm. and multiple phone calls. But that's not uncommon for a, for a project that's coming down into the certificate of occupancy mode, which is what we're looking at right now. So it's ramped up here, but, you know, it should be because we've got an event coming up on the 16th. With such an aggressive timeline, even from the get-go, were there any challenges, unforeseen challenges that came up, and how did you overcome those to stay on schedule? Um, I don't think there was anything major that came up. I really don't. Um, they had a plan from the beginning. They had confidence in their plan, meaning the CM, uh, Brassfield and Gorey, and they stayed with it. I think the biggest challenge is right now, you know, trying to get all the different subcontractors on site, trying to get all the different inspections you need uh, for a building this size mm-hmm. and knowing that that deadline's looming on the 16th for your first event. So I think over the last two weeks, um, I think if you asked everybody on the project team, this has been the biggest challenge, but that's not unheard of. Looking back on it now, pretty much the whole process, what was the most difficult part of this entire initiative for you? I think when we first had a team together of the contractor and, and the architect, uh, we went through a series of um, Uh, of meetings where we looked at the entire scope. Then we broke it down into our schedule and found out that our GMP, which is guaranteed maximum price that the contractor needed to deliver, was exponentially higher than what we could fund. And so we had to make the hard decision to change contractors, and it delayed the project a year. I think if you look back on it, it was probably the best thing we could have done from the delay aspect is we were able to really define, better define the design of the facility, work through some challenges that we had had at that point, and really what you're seeing today was a, a product of that extra time we had for design. But I would say during that time period when we had to change contractors, that was the most challenging. We talked earlier this year about this, and I thought one of the most interesting and unknown parts of this whole process was the fact that there are so many other projects going on even around the state that materials become an issue. I mean, little things like that that get into the nitty-gritty of construction. How did you overcome some of those challenges in in putting such a big building together? I mean, that's a great point. I was talking to um, the superintendent yesterday, 
and, and just talked about what a great job they had done um, to bring this, uh, this building this close right now and what I would determine to be an impossible schedule. Um, and I think that would, that's the biggest challenge they found is that over the last four months, the subs that they needed was liquidated. They could not particularly uh, take into uh, particular attention the um, tile. You have a lot of bathroom tile and all the showers and all the bathrooms. There was a time here two weeks ago we had five different subcontractors from the tile trade alone because we just could not get enough tile workers to work here on site. The economy is so good right now and building is so hot in this state that it's really kind of watered down the sub base. But that's why we chose Brassfield and Gorey because they can reach to Orlando, they can reach to Jacksonville, they can reach to Alabama. They have many different offices, and they have relationships with a lot of different clients, and they were able to bring the people on to finish the job. Certainly, scrambling for bathroom tile might qualify as the answer to this, but I'm curious, are there any other funny stories or just things people wouldn't expect when you're going through this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, when, you know, like trying to get the swim team back into their facility, you know, we were told that, that they can swim and and then they couldn't because we didn't get our temperature certificate of occupancy. Then all of a sudden you get a call at 6 a.m. and saying, okay, they could swim. Well, you're trying <laughs> Adult to, swim. You're back you're to trying, to rally, trying to rally the swim team around at 6.30 was difficult. Um, you know, I think trying to keep the uh, gymnastics um, team in practicing, we had to bring in a lot of different air conditioners and power and water and everything um, and, and trying to get those uh, – those team members to get out and go into a portalette and some some of those things the construction workers was pretty pretty funny to watch but I think overall it was an extremely uh, aggressive schedule like we said but really wasn't anything unforeseen or anything crazy. Let's talk about what fans can expect now when they come to the doors for the first basketball game in a little less than a week. What are they going to expect? What's going to be different about this new facility? I think it'll hit you right when you're walking up to the facility. I mean, the exterior landscaping and hardscape is totally different. It's much more friendly for folks to walk up um, to get to the main gates. And then when you, when you walk in the doors, you talked about what, when you walk in the doors, what will they see? I think it's going to hit them right away. The grand main atrium, that's a two-story, two-level main atrium that people, there's so much space to congregate and hang and kind of meet your friends there. There's concessions. There's going to be T-shirt sales and everything right there for you before you even get into the arena. So it's a series of steps where you're going to be welcomed by the plaza. You walk into the atrium, and it's a big, huge space to meet your friends and gather. And then you go into the main arena, and then you'll be hit by you know, the, the LED sports lighting, sound system, and obviously the center-hung scoreboard and corner scoreboards, the video component of it is something really going to knock some people's socks off. Have you gotten to see it all in action yet? Have they fired everything up all at once, or are you still waiting for that moment? Not all at once. <laughs> um, the corner scoreboards have gone on, uh, and then they go off, and the center-hung scoreboard would be on. Um, we've seen it at the basketball set. We set the basketball floor the other day, and we put the press tables out, and we put the scores table out, we put the team benches out. So we just wanted to make sure and ensure that everything was fit just the way it was designed, which it did. So it was fun to see the basketball floor down, the new basketball floor. Um, we bought a new one, and it's new artwork on it, so it'll be you know be fun for the fans to see. But um, everything hasn't been cranked up yet. We expect that to happen today or tomorrow. Um, in advance of the uh, commencement. Um, and then we'll really start, once commencement's done on the 17th, we'll really start ramping up the basketball game on the 18th. This is the first venue on campus that's had the naming rights sold to a company. So can you talk about 
where Exact Tech came in and why that was important for this project? Yeah, I think from a funding standpoint, it was it was vitally important. Um, when you're trying to put together a $65 million budget with limited resources, particularly you know from the university because they have challenges too and, mm-hmm. and they have goals with other facilities, I think it was really important. And, and to get that agreement put in place with a partner that's local, um, I think is really, really uh, important for the community itself. I think they're very, very excited about it. Um, the exposure that they'll gain by having Exact Tech Arena at the Stephen C. O'Connell Center for every event that's on television, mm-hmm. not to matter the people that come in, it was really, really important. So it was, um, you know, marriage made in heaven. I mean, it was something that both entities, both athletics and Exact Tech, were on the same page from the beginning, and it was really a very easy negotiation. Another interesting part of the dynamic of this whole project is while this is going on, Scott Strickland takes over for Jeremy Foley. What impact, if any, did that have on this whole big project? Yeah, I think the hay was in the barn, uh, for lack of a better term, when when Scott was on board. We've just tried to inform him on on how we got to this point uh, moving forward, how we've funded it, so he knows our responsibility and liabilities in the funding of this project at, at such a high degree. He really understands the importance of the fan experience, and so he's excited about taking part in that, as well as so is Jeremy. Jeremy's been, I would say, one of the the one guiding force throughout this whole thing was Jeremy Foley saying, this is important to athletics, and this is important to the community and the university, and he was really the one that made it happen. So now I'm sure you'd like to sit back, just look at what you've created, and relax, but that doesn't really happen in this business. Now you've got more projects you announced a couple months ago. Can you talk about how the football, baseball, softball plan came together and what that means moving forward. Sure. Right now, um, you know, you talk a good, good question about Scott. Scott's kind of if came in with a $100 million um, price tag on his head, so to speak. But it's been uh, enjoyable to work through that, both with, with Scott and with Jeremy. He's, Jeremy's going to be a prime fundraiser for these projects. Um, I think right now we're looking at those three, football operations center, baseball uh, renovation expansion, softball renovation expansion, as being those three prime projects that we're going to attack right away. I think the first thing we'll do is probably get the football out on the street as quickly as we can from an interview standpoint, interview architects and CMs, only because the timeline is about a year design and probably about a year and a half construction. So it's a very Mm -hmm. long project, much like the O'Connell Center was. Softball and baseball a little shorter. I mean, you've got a finite window to get that done from the time they leave and finish at at Super Regionals or Mm -hmm. Regionals or whenever we go with NCAAs until February 1. I mean, that is it for baseball and softball. So I think getting football on the street first, because it's such a long project, is what we'll do here. But certainly following up shortly thereafter, we'll be getting after softball and baseball. Those are all important. So many campuses have vast amounts of space they can work with. That's not something you have the benefit of here. So when you talk about those aggressive windows, how much more difficult is it to accomplish these projects, given that you have no other footprint to move someone to? It's on that plot of land, and it's got to be done before they've got games to play. Yeah, I mean, it's tight. Uh, our facilities are tight, which makes them unique. Now we kind of have an athletic district where you're talking sure. about starting right here at the football stadium all the way down through the golf course that goes to 34th Street. So I think that's unique. I think it's what makes Florida special, but also it presents its sets of challenges, particularly baseball. You know, we have a maintenance facility that's in between now an indoor football facility and the baseball stadium. Well, in order to make the baseball stadium what you need it to be, we're going to need to move maintenance. That'll be an additional project to move the maintenance facility to somewhere else so that it makes sense not to have a maintenance facility wedged into your baseball stadium. So I think the uh, continuity really helps being in the core campus, but it does present the challenges from a space allocation standpoint. Do you ever talk to contractors or designers and you give them what you're working with and they say, 
we can't do it. I mean, we can't do that project in this amount of time. It's, it's too risky for us. Yeah, I think the O'Connell Center is a perfect case in point. I think that's exactly what happened with our first contractor. They said they couldn't do it. And we asked them for a solution, and they didn't have one. They could not deliver the project that we wanted within the time frame and within the budget that we needed. So, um, yeah, it happens. And so what you hope for is that uh, somebody's open and honest with you and say that. I have no problem if someone says they can't do it, mm -hmm. none whatsoever. The challenge may be too deep for a number of different reasons. Maybe they don't have the capital capacity to do it, or maybe they don't have the relationships to do it. Either way, I'm fine. We'll find somebody that can get it done within that window, though. Looking at the macro level, I remember a few years ago when there were questions about facilities, Jeremy had said, we're not getting into an arms race here. And now it's, it's sort of become an arms race to yeah. some degree. What do you think has changed in the landscape in the last few years that this now is just the way the business works? Yeah, I mean, I think we've always tried to, you know, maintain our facilities and build our facilities for what Florida needed, not necessarily what Texas A&M or Oregon mm. or someone else did. And we're continuing down that road. What we're at, we're in a timeline now, though, where it's not keeping up with the Joneses. It's being competitive. Mm -hmm. We're not going to build a football facility that's going to be the Taj Mahal. We're going to build a football facility that's right for the University of Florida. We're not going to build the biggest baseball stadium, but we're going to build a baseball stadium that's right for the University of Florida. Same thing with softball. So although you may see some schools spending more money, I think what we'll do is try to spend it smartly, and, and that's really a key component that carries over both from Jeremy right into Scott. We'll build what's right for Florida. What part of the process do you find most challenging? Is it design? Is it fundraising? Is it execution? Which part requires the most attention? I think the construction, really, you, you need to be on site. You need to be around. You need to be looking. You're answering a lot of questions. You're coming up with a lot of different problems. The design part of it's the fun part. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll come down and you'll have two or three days of charrettes where you just sit there and there's all kinds of ideas. And, you know, after you're done, the architect goes back and they got to put it all together. Mm -hmm. And then they just send you the pictures. Um, so I, I think the, the design part is, is the fun part. Um, I think the challenging part is actually the construction part of it. Fundraising is always going to be what it is. You know, it has to do with the commitment of your of your booster base and your fans to how important it is for them. You know, to see great facilities and for our student athletes to participate in those facilities. I think our fans are second to none. So, I'm not going to say that's an easy thing to do, but um, when you're selling the University of Florida and our and our athletic program, I think it's pretty important. When you look toward the future, Darry even asked this question, but beyond the projects we talked about, softball, football, baseball, is there a time in the near future where you think you'll be able to sort of sit and, and just look at what you've done, or is it just going to be on to the next one, and does this just continue into the future? Yeah, I don't think we'll ever sit still. No, <laughs> no. I'll tell you right Would now. You like to sit still? Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, it's job security. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I know, I think we're looking at doing some things at track already. We're looking at doing some things with the dorms. I think the, uh, you know, Ben Hill Griffin Stadium is a perfect uh, case in point. I think there's a lot of things we need to get done in our football stadium, a lot. And, and that's not going to wait till after these master plan projects are done. Improving the, the fan experience at, in Ben Hill Griffin Stadium is going to be something we're going to get on right away. Um, and so I think there's always going to be something, but I think we've got to at least prioritized now in our master plan, and we know there's a roadmap on what our needs are, and we will attack those. Tickets are still available for the home opener for men's basketball on Wednesday the 21st against Arkansas Little Rock, so head to FloridaGators.com for your chance to be a part of history. I was able to tour the arena myself shortly after talking to Chip, and I can confirm you do not want to miss it. Moving on, 
there's really no such thing as a slow news day in the world of college athletics, especially this time of year when the coaching carousel gets revved up in football. The Gators found that out firsthand this week when it was announced that defensive coordinator Jeff Collins was leaving his post to become the head coach at Temple. We wanted to hear the latest on that front as well as assess where both basketball teams are following recent losses at Florida State. So we sat down with Scott Carter and Chris Harry for another roundtable discussion that began with the news on Coach Collins. Yeah, Adam, I just watched his opening press conference at Temple, and uh, he said the last 48 hours has been crazy. He's running on adrenaline and about six, eight thight Mountain Dews. So <laughs> obviously he's going to carry his uh, Mountain Dew uh, tradition up there. But, you know, we'd heard his name in the past. You know, last year UCF was kind of looking for a coach when they hired Scott Frost. Jeff's name was mentioned in there. But this year it had been kind of quite around him. And uh, out of the blue, he takes the Temple job uh, – you know, there is a strong connection there with Matt Rule, uh, who, you know, left Temple to go to Baylor after, uh, what, back-to-back 10-win seasons up in Philly. Him and Matt Rule, they've known each other for 20-some years. They text almost daily. They work together at Tiny Albright College, later at Western Carolina. Collins actually hired Rule uh, on his defensive staff way back then, and uh Anyway, I'm sure Rule put in a lot of good words for uh, Jeff for that job. And, you know, Jeff had made no secret that he, he was interested in becoming a head coach. And, uh, you know, it's certainly uh, a loss for Florida. But at the same time, I, I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see how he takes this opportunity because uh, he had an impact here at Florida two years. And uh, he seems to maximize uh, the talent he has. And, you know, that's a good coach. So I, I thought it was really surprising because – I. You kind of forgotten that the Temple job was was mm-hmm. was out there, mm-hmm. and I think there was some buzz for Jeff to FAU. That kind yeah. of died. That was a couple of weeks ago, but that kind of died down. And you just you just Lane figured, Kiffin has a way of stealing other yeah. people's buzz, <laughs> well, yeah. remarkably. But I mean, you, you just kind of thought you know Jeff was going to be around, but you know he obviously earned this position. He's done a fantastic job with the defense, and you know you got to wish a guy like that best luck. Then he turned to you know what happens now, Scott, going forward to the into the bowl game. Who will handle that defense? You got some certainly some qualified candidates right there on the staff who'd he turn to well I mean the one that's obvious is Randy Shannon right. you know he came here as a his title is associate head coach co-coordinator also linebackers coach has experience you got to remember he was defensive coordinator on that maybe the best college football team ever what that 2001 Hurricanes team mm-hmm. then later became head coach so you know he grew up on the defensive side of the ball I mean he he knows defenses he knows these players so Jim McElwain, uh, in his first uh, remarks, uh, he basically said, you know, he'll look at that closer. He should have a better idea of how they're going to approach the ball game and maybe even uh, a permanent solution there. One of the biggest impacts McElwain's had here on the program is he's brought in a lot of behind-the-scene analysts. Uh, mm-hmm. It's almost like coaching staffs now. They have two deeps of their own. If you're at Alabama, it might be a three deep. <laughs> so, you know, there's some guys there that maybe he has in mind. But on staff, you got to think Randy Shannon. And uh, another interesting possibility, I haven't heard this. It's no sense of that. But Tim Skipper, the running backs coach here, his name has been floated around to go back to Fresno State as defensive coordinator. And uh, Tim has experience on offense and defense uh, in his career. Uh, he's running backs coach here, but uh, he's worked with McElwain. Those two guys are tight. But, you know, so there's, there's some options there. But replacing Jeff is, uh, you know, he did a nice job here. This program's identity has been defense now, mm-hmm. really, for the think last – Yeah, you know, think about that for a second. Yeah. Because yeah. The defense excellence is now the expectation here. And, you know, we've done a 180 
in terms of uh, where we might have been looking at it years ago. Yeah. That, but I mean, since 2009. Since, yeah, exactly. Mm. Will Muschamp got it going. It was obviously picked up you know, once McElwain got here. So, you know, the expectation for whoever takes up, whether it is Randy Shannon, Chris Rumpf, or whoever it might be, will be sustained excellence. They certainly, whoever takes over for the bowl game, certainly has those players in place to do that. But, uh, you know, that's quite an expectation to step into. So is there a sense then it will be an internal hire or are external candidates going to be, rule be out a big part external of it as well? Candy Scott. No, I don't, I don't think from what Jim McElwain said that uh, you can rule out external or internal. You know, you got to remember like how he operated when he got to Florida. He took quite a while to fill out his mm-hmm. staff. Now, it, ironically, Jeff Collins was his first hire and they had that month of transition this time two years ago between not really being involved day-to-day because they had D.J. Durkin as in-room coach for the Birmingham Bowl. So those two guys were very closely just kind of getting the lay of the land here. Uh, Jeff spoke about how that experience will help him at Temple because he's kind of in the same situation. They've got an in-room coach for the bowl game. But as for what impact on the Gators and what Jim McElwain going to do, I would say it's kind of a, a blank uh, slate right now. I think he could go either way. Where do we feel like, Collins' presence was felt the most? Was it in schematics? Was it in motivation? Was it in recruiting? Where where was his biggest imprint on the program? I think attitude. He likes to play aggressively. A lot of man-to-man, a lot of blitzing. And you obviously, when you have talent like uh, Jalen Tabor and Quincy Wilson at corner, you can do that. Very similar schematic system than what Will Muschamp used. Uh, we hear it all the time, players coach. Mm-hmm. It fits him. I mean, players like him. They respect him. I saw several several after, tweets about after the news. Congratulate him. Happy for him. Yeah. Yeah. After the news yeah. broke, a lot of guys were, you know, that's my man. So glad for him. It's not like uh, any cryptic. Oh, I'm glad that guy's gone. I mean, right. you, you could tell they really, they really like Jeff Collins, and and he embodied that. And I think that was very, very important, especially on that side of the ball, because. You know, they played for a defensive coach, and it's hard to sometimes win those guys over. I think Jeff was able to do that, and the results have kind of shown that the last two seasons. The question inevitably everyone's going to be asking, what does this mean for the future of Money Down? (laughs) Does Money Down leave with Jeff Collins, or is Money Down here to stay regardless? You know, we've seen a lot of that Money Down stuff. There's like uh, an art to it, I think, because I think the Money Down guys from the first year, you know, stayed over for the second year. I'm really worried about the job security of the Money Down guys. (laughs) Hey, hey. To be honest with you, I don't know if Money Down was a Jeff Collins thing or a McElwain thing. I'm going to assume it was was a Collins Collins thing. Yeah, it was more Collins. Uh, He kind of did that at Mississippi Mm -hmm. State before Mm -hmm. he came here, made it a tradition here. And for those two seasons doing that, they've certainly gotten a lot of publicity. But, yeah, we'll we'll be interested to see how that that goes. need to see him start chanting some of that on offense. (laughs) Money Down, yes. Money Down is every down on offense. (laughs) Right. Every down. Right. One thing that we talked about last week was this quarterback question, and people were floating the idea that maybe you pull a redshirt off for freshmen. Since we spoke, McElwain came out and said, Appleby's going to start, and the freshmen will be in the same spots they were before in terms of if necessary. So is this a surprise at all, and, and, and what does this mean for the bowl game and then beyond? I don't really think it's a surprise, uh, Adam. Uh, I know there was a lot of noise out there, as they say, like, go ahead and start Felipe Franks in the bowl game, burn his redshirt. You know, Applebee's only got one more game here. Who cares, you know, if he doesn't play in it? But I think Jim McElwain's a little smarter than that. I mean, he realizes it's one game, it's one ball game. You obviously want to win the game. I think they feel comfortable that they can win this game with Austin Applebee if he avoids some turnovers. So, you know, big picture, it doesn't change a lot. I think you'll go into spring ball with Del Rio if he's healthy. Franks, Trask, and then we'll just have to play it from there. Again, I think we're going to enter another season without 
a clear-cut starting quarterback uh, for the third year in a row under McIlwain. Not ideal, obviously, but I think they still feel that the depth is there better than it has been in a long time. And you got to wonder if one of those guys is the guy. Yeah, it wasn't a surprise to me in any way. I just think it's I just think it's a lot to ask to ask a player who sat out the whole season to all of a sudden start in a bowl game. He's never taken a snap with the live Division One bullets and. Let's say he's awful, then that's a terrible thing to take into the off season. Whether it's what are the fans are thinking, what's he thinking, mm-hmm. confidence wise, and everything. I just think it's really would have been an unfair situation. Uh, I've heard some people say, "Well, if you're a competitor, you you mm-hmm. you want to play," but that's a whole year of your college existence, and uh, to sacrifice that. And one of these guys probably, and I'm not going to say it. But you, there's quarterbacks that end up transferring because mm-hmm. only one can play, obviously, and. Um, you'd really blow your transfer year even with that, you know, having having already sat out one right, year and that right. kind of thing. So I, I just think it would have been a would have been a lot to ask. And you know, for what Appleby's been through, go ahead and roll him out there against Iowa. He's played Iowa before, Scott. Have we looked into that? He does have some Big Ten experience against Iowa, so he's familiar with uh, the Hawkeyes and kind of what their scheme on defense is. Uh, and Jim McElwain's talked about how you know some of the players will rely on him for some input there, just on Big Ten football and stuff, but. Uh, you know, going back to the original question, something Chris said, I think you can't overstate shaking a guy, a young quarterback's confidence because, mm-hmm. you know, you bring him in against Alabama and he goes one for eight and throws three interceptions and gets sacked. I mean, that's a killer confidence-wise. Right. And yeah, and what does it really prove? Yeah. That, that mean, doesn't mean the guy's a bad player. What, no, he's never it, played before. He's played against his first games against Alabama. And what does it do going forward if you play in one game and it's a bowl game and you, you don't perform well and then you don't have a chance to rectify no, you have it a for whole six season. or seven right. months? Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's critical. I've always looked at the quarterback's confidence maybe a little bit like a goalie in hockey or a pitcher in baseball closer. You get in their head a little bit, kicker in football, things can go uh, wrong real fast, and you do not want that to happen with a young freshman quarterback. We'll talk more about the bowl game on our bowl preview podcast, but right now let's turn our attention to basketball. And When we talked last week, Chris, high hopes for Florida going into into Florida State and trying to break that little streak that the Seminoles have going, but uh, unfortunately a little too much bacon, it seems, in, <laughs> yeah. in Florida Florida was uh, was unable to pull off what a lot of people were hoping would be a, an early road win. I think we talked about last week. Uh, Florida State was an incredible size. Uh, they were at a significant advantage uh, up front, um, rebounding wise. Uh, it kind of played right into what Florida's weaknesses has been: defensive rebounding. And again, you know, Florida had some difficulty closing out the first half and some more difficulty starting the second half. And as Mike White pointed out after the game, Adam, I think they allowed, I want to say it's 50, 58% shooting in the second half against Florida State game, 61% against Duke in the second half, 61% against Gonzaga in the second half. And really, in exception of the Duke game where they were down 10 at halftime, they're in those other games. Now, all three of these teams they've lost to are ranked opponents. Obviously no uh, shame in losing against Gonzaga, Duke, and Florida State, but at the same time, uh, you know, quality wins, feel-good wins, you know, you can throw those out the window. Players don't deal in that kind of thing. This team wants to win win an important game now. Um, go to the Orange Bowl Classic this week and play uh, a Charlotte team that they're better than. They should probably win that game. Then they're home for the O-Dome opener next week against uh, Arkansas Little Rock, a team that was in the NCAA tournament last year but lost a bunch of the players. So they need to build a little bit of momentum until they start the, the game after that will be the SEC opener at Arkansas. So a uh, little disappointing how they finished that game that they weren't be 
able to win that game. Uh, they were underdogs in that game. Kevin Allen is in foul trouble kind of from the get-go. They put him back in with two fouls. He got a third foul on a three-point shot on a horrific foul. Even knows he knows it was bad, but didn't get in his head. He played pretty damn well in the second half. Uh, you know, kept them in the game scoring-wise. They were down 13, got it to a one-possession game, and had the ball. So uh, they didn't fold in that regard. So there's something to take away from that. But I think they're kind of tired of leaving against good teams and feeling like they played okay. They need to win one of those games. When is the last time we're going to talk basketball before the end of the year? So I guess when you look at the, the lay of the land, when is the next opportunity to win an important game, as you say, the kind I, that they've let go by the wayside? I would have to say it's the season opener. The SEC opener this year is a little bit different. It's going to be in December the 29th at Arkansas. Florida's had some okay success going to Arkansas the last few times. Uh, Mike White and his first team did not go there last year. That'll be the opener for them. And, you know, you want to get off on a, on a good note in the SEC. If you can steal one on the road, it's even better. Last year in their first SEC game under Mike White on the road, it was the worst game of the season. Went up to Tennessee and lost to a Tennessee team that just wasn't very good. Now they had they lost their best player uh, later in the season, but I mean there was no excuse in how they played. They were embarrassed by that game, and I imagine they're going to want to get off to a much better start to the conference this season, especially on the road against a pretty good team against Arkansas, which is going to be better than they were last year. So uh, I think one of the things that's trending that I didn't didn't mention from the Florida State game, Casey Hill's been pretty good the last couple games. He was good against Duke. Uh, he was good against Florida State, career-high 21 points. I don't know if the coaches want him taking 15 shots, but he's taking better shots. And he's getting to the rim. I mean, the, Florida State kind of played into his wheelhouse in that they extended their defense and their bigs came out a little bit. When he can blow by guys and he can finish at the rim, he's a pretty good player. So if he can continue on that trend, he's hitting free throws 76%, which is over 20% better than his career. Um, he's playing pretty darn well right now, and he's shown a little bit of some leadership qualities both during the games and in practice that is uh, encouraging to the coaches. So we'll see if that carries on into the conference season. Well, everything that Chris said about Casey Hill, I actually kind of noticed that myself in that Duke game. As long when that guy's going to the hoop, I mean that's his game. That's where he's going to be successful. But maybe he's got a little bit. He sees the calendar on the wall, like a lot of guys do. He knows that he's only got a few months left in college basketball to make his mark, and he's got aspirations beyond this. But if he can continue to play like that, and the, the Gators can, you know, just do some things around him to gel as a team, I still, I, I was watching that Florida Florida State game Sunday, and I saw two NCAA tournament teams there just from watching that. I think Florida State, they haven't been since 2012. I think they're definitely a tournament team, and I think Florida still has that potential. They haven't been what since 14, since that Final Four run. So early season matchup uh, is good to see. But I think the most important thing right now with these guys is got to be getting in that new building. I mean, that, don't you think that, Chris, that's got to provide a little bit of just midseason juice? Well, I mean, the number now is 17 straight games that weren't at home. So if you go back to last year, if you go going back to the, to the SEC, SEC yeah, going up to the yeah. SEC, they just haven't had a home game. I saw some Mike White, thirty four percent of his games since he's been coach here have been away, have not been home games, wow. have been nothing, <laughs> you know, a, neutral wow, side or road yeah. games. Yeah, so uh, uh, I mean, thirty four percent have been home games. All the rest, so yeah. whatever, so, yeah, sixty six percent. We're not good at math. Been, yeah, it's a yeah. communications been, department, yeah. not a mathematics <laughs> department. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> have, have, um, they do got to start shooting the ball better too. Uh, we talked a lot on our podcast previously about. Uh, Canyon Berry. Now, Canyon Berry, I think, is one of his last 11 over the last five games from three-point range. He took a nasty gash on a forearm to his head, 13 stitches um, against Florida State on a foul that wasn't called. It was actually a foul called on him. So, uh, you know, he, he needs to, you know, write that shot a little bit better. Um, but, the, you know, 
they're just not a great shooting team, certainly not a great three-point shooting team. But, you know, Kayvon Allen gives them a little bit of that. Uh, Devin Robinson doesn't get off enough three-point shots, but he's a pretty good three-point shooter. Justin Leon is the best one. He only got off three combined in the two previous games. The better competition, they're going to be able to run him off the line a little bit. So, uh, if you know, offensively, Probably a bit of a work in progress still. Um, have to find themselves a little bit. But like Scott said, Casey Hill's strength is driving to the basket. And um, if he can do that a little bit better and maybe on the way to the basket, maybe start finding some guys in addition to finishing at the rim, maybe they'll be in a little bit better shape. If we can wrap up today with some tough news from the women's basketball side, a really a stunning story that a lot of questions and, and not a lot of answers about the sudden departure of, you could argue, Florida's best player. Yeah, I mean, Eliana Kristinaki, uh, she arrived here from Greece last year. You could tell right away she was a player. Uh, she was going to be one of the Florida's best. Uh, I'd make the case she might be their best all-around player since Sydney Moss. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it was fun watching her play, but you know how sports are, uh, some differences there. Suspension, I guess she was looking at a first-half suspension. Didn't sit well with her. Some philosophical difference, perhaps, with the uh, coach, and she's no longer part of the program, and that's a very disappointing for this Florida team. You gotta remember they entered the season ranked in the preseason polls for the first time in, in fifteen years. And for the most part, like the men's team, they've been traveling around the state mm-hmm. in different places, uh, haven't played a home game. Uh they've held up so, you know, they're in a position to maybe open the SEC feeling good about themselves after a, a tough situation and now you lose arguably uh, your best player. So on that front, let's not discount the likelihood of her being homesick. I mean, she's been away from Greece for the longest sure, time. And, sure. and I think I talked to her. For, I did a story on, on, on a Leaf protocol. Mm-hmm. And uh, I talked to Ileana about the, 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 you know, the trials and tribulations of being overseas. She says that's the hardest part is not you know, being so far away from home. And that may have played into it a little bit. But, yeah, tough hit when you think about what she brought offensively especially and I remember that from the very first game I saw her play was was it the FSU game last year was that her that was, was that she, the second game of the year or was played, that the home debut that was the second game that she played the that was her home minutes first, in, in the opener in the and temple then, game right and then really ironically enough she really came out in that Florida State oh, game and then her career so at Florida could, comes to an end at right Florida after State the following year. so yeah so that's a that's a that's a bad way to go out full circle but I remember just seeing her at that Florida State game, the play she made down the stretch, she and, if I recall, Simone Westbrook making some mm-hmm. big plays in that game to see. These are two girls that uh, that this women's basketball team can build around. Now they don't have either one because yeah. Westbrook's out for the season with a knee injury. So from the coaching standpoint, what, are they down to seven in the rotation? Eight? Eight, yeah. depending on the day. You have so, some injury issues and as she's, well. And she's had that situation in recent years before mm-hmm. where they mm-hmm. haven't had depth. I mean, it's obviously when you don't have the depth and you lose a player – uh, just unexpectedly in the middle of the season. I mean, it's got to be a tough deal to navigate in the middle of a season. But we'll see how they uh, they do without her and uh, see if some of these younger players can pick up the slack. And that's going to do it for today's show. As always, we encourage you to subscribe to Gator Tales on the podcast app of your choice. And please leave us a review so we can continue to grow and reach every corner of the Gator Nation. Our next episode is a special edition coming out next Wednesday featuring an in-depth conversation with new athletic director Scott Strickland. And it'll be a great opportunity for fans to learn what makes the new leader of the program tick, so you won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you inside Exact Tech Arena at the Stephen C. O'Connell Center. We'll be right back.